The, this text is the third in the series called The Library of Wisdom and Compassion. So we've done the first two, Approaching the Buddhist Path and the Foundation of Buddhist Practice, before, and all those teachings are online. Um, and so this one will be conducted similarly. So I'll, re uh, I'll read the book and then comment on it. Um, and I'll tell you the a little bit of the story about how this whole series came to be written, although the series isn't finished yet. Um, but before we start each session, we will uh, do a visualization and some recitations to clarify our spiritual direction that we're uh, practicing the Buddhist path. So we will recite an homage to the Buddha and take refuge and generate bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is so we know why we're practicing this path. And then I think there will also be a mandala offering, right, to, to request teachings. Uh, so when we do the, um, the recitation at the beginning, I won't always say this, so it's up to you to remember yeah, but we're not uh, saying everything into empty space. You know, we're sitting here, we're imagining in the space in front of us, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, all of our spiritual mentors, and uh, they're looking at us quite happily because we're going to study and learn and contemplate the teachings. And surrounded, surrounding us, we think of all sentient beings who are also very happy that we're practicing because when we practice, not only will we become a kinder person in this life, but we will progress on the path to awakening. And then when we're awakened, we can be of greater benefit to them. Yeah, so uh, take a moment and have generate this uh, visualization and really think that you're sitting in the presence of all the holy beings who have done what you aspire to do and that they're all uh, happy that we're doing what we're doing and they're ready to help us and inspire us along the path. And then let's generate our motivation and since we will be studying His Holiness's book, let's make our motivation the same as His motivation. This is how we join our minds with the, with the Buddha's minds, how we receive the blessings and inspiration from our teachers and the holy beings by making putting effort into making our minds be like their minds. So think of all the countless sentient beings. All of whom want happiness and not suffering. and yet continually create the causes for suffering. 
So even though beings like that may act out of ignorance, anger, and attachment, when we think of them as controlled by their mental afflictions in this way, then there's space for compassion to arise in our mind rather than judgment and criticism. (coughs) And this compassion wants them to be free of all their dukkha, all of their unsatisfactory experiences in samsara. And with love, we want them to have all happiness. And with this, let's generate the bodhicitta taking upon ourselves the responsibility to lead sentient beings to awakening. And in order to do that, we have to free ourselves first. And to do that, we have to learn, reflect, and meditate on the teachings. And so we're starting that process with learning about samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. So let that be your motivation for listening. So, samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. On the cover is uh, part of the picture of the that explains the twelve links of dependent arising, with the Lord of Death holding the wheel of life in his clutches. And we will uh, get into later on in the book the actual 12 links, and how this illustration uh, describes them. But seeing the cover sets the stage for the principal topics that we're going to be working on, which are the four truths. Okay, so the truth of dukkha, of its origins, its cessation, and the path to that cessation. So I thought I would start reading just a little bit from the um, preface. I'm not going to read the whole preface. That uh, talks about how the book came about. Okay. So I could probably just tell you offhand too. But once upon a time, okay, uh, so I had been studying Tibetan Buddhism since 1975 and uh, learning from the Tibetan masters who were really excellent 
and using the Tibetan text. But I also realized that me and the others from the West who didn't grow up as Buddhists uh, were lacking the kind of foundation to understand what the teachings were all about. We were taught the Lam Rim, uh, which starts out about how to rely on a spiritual mentor, and we're going, what's that? And then from there into uh, precious human life, where we're supposed to feel fortunate that we're not born as a hell-being hungry ghost or animal, and we're going, huh? And, um, you know, it continued on from there. So the teachings were wonderful, but it became really obvious that many of us needed foundation teachings first. Okay. So um, I, I had the idea to ask His Holiness to write a short root text that then the Tibetan Geshis could use when they taught the Westerners. And the short, this short text would have topics like uh, you know, the two truths and the four truths and rebirth and how the, our happiness and suffering depends on the mind and these kind of topics that we need to understand first. What is the mind? What is the body? Yeah. And His Holiness very often, uh, when he teaches in the West, would start out with these topics, but the Tibetan texts wouldn't do that. So, um, it took me a couple of years to get an appointment <laughs> with His Holiness, uh, but I went in. It must have been, I don't know if I put the date in here. It must have been 1975. No, 1995, sorry. <laughs> Oops, 1995. So I requested him to write a short text on the stages of the path that lamas could use when teaching serious students new to Buddhism. Then, much to my surprise, His Holiness said, okay, that a larger book needed to be compiled first, and then from that we'll make the shorter one. And then he handed me um, a transcript from uh, a Lam Rim teaching that he had just finished given, and sent me on my way to uh, start writing this larger text, okay? So at that time, the idea, at least my idea, was it would be one volume, and it would contain everything, but with this nice introduction, uh, you know, of the topics that we needed. Okay, so, um, you know, and then His Holiness said, uh, he was saying that this book needed to be different. It shouldn't just be another Lam Rim book, because... There's no use to write another one. There's lots of excellent ones already. So he said it must contain material from the philosophical uh, treatises so that the readers would really gain more understanding of, of those texts. And, uh, you know, and so, okay, so he sent me on my way. So I started writing. And it takes a long time to get an appointment with, with His Holiness, like years, okay? So I just kept writing. And uh, finally, I got a, a, another appointment. And, uh, you know, because I wanted to ask questions to him, because I had compiled from many of my friends the, a list of questions 
that uh, that non-Tibetans often have about the teachings. And, you know, so this book had to contain that kind of material. Um, so I went in and I started asking those questions. And then uh, I can't remember if it was that interview or the next the next set of interviews. But then he said, well, yeah, not only the philosophical text, but the Pali tradition. That needs to be in this book, too. And let's throw in Chinese Buddhism for good luck. And, uh, you know, and he would have, you know, had all the other kinds of Buddhism as well, except we kind of stopped there because that was enough, you know. And, uh, and so he sent me on my way that time with a letter from the private office, um, you know, so that I could go to Thailand and study with a Thai master and, you know, learn some of the Pali tradition directly there. So I started writing, and I kept writing, and then, you know, I went to Thailand. It was a wonderful experience being um, part of a monastery there, um, being the only bhikshuni. Actually, at that time, I was the only nun at, at that monastery. Uh, they, they didn't really know what to do with me. You know, because they couldn't sit me with the lay people because I was a bhikshuni, but they couldn't sit me with the bhikshus because I was a bhikshuni. So I was somewhere in between. And, um, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And the master there, Achananan, was very generous with teaching and answering questions and so on. Um, and the next time I went back to His Holiness, I had about uh, 2,000 pages written. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, well, we got to read these, so let's, you know, to check them. So we started reading. I think we got through about four. And then when I told uh, the secretary that His Holiness said we were going to go through all of the pages, uh, many volumes, I mean, he almost fainted. And he said, no, we, we got to work something else out. And then His Holiness said, yes, we do. And so then he appointed uh, various Geshis to work with me first. Uh, uh, well, I was I had worked with Geshe Lakdor and then Geshe Dorji Damdul and now Geshe uh, Damdul Namgyal. And, uh, and then at different, uh, interview, different sets of interviews, His Holiness would often invite different Geshis to come and, um, join in the discussion. Okay. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really something. Uh, let's see. So let me read a little bit from here. So His Holiness often invited two, three, or four Geshis, and sometimes his brother Nari Rinpoche, uh, to join the interviews and engage them in intriguing discussions about the topics I raised. Okay. So um, I felt a little bit like Shariputra. I asked a question. Okay, that's the extent to which I'm like Shariputra. I don't have his wisdom. But I asked a question, and then His Holiness and the, and the Geshis would join in, and they would discuss it, and this fantastic discussion, all in Tibetan, which I don't understand. And the translator would try and translate, but they were going so fast, and they wouldn't stop. 
And then so finally, sometimes in the afternoon, I got translations and or a little bit during it. And, you know, I recorded things and then went home and transcribed and so on. But it was wonderful, um, you know, listening to them. And, and I just wished I could understand the whole thing. So I have everything is taped. Yeah, so that maybe next life when I know Tibetan, um, or whenever I know Tibetan, or whenever the tapes are translated word for word, um, you know, then uh, can know all of it. But a lot of it was just the discussion to come up with a conclusion. Yeah, and there were some topics that they um, would debate and debate. Like there was one of them... Um, I was asking, how does a yogi see our world, our human realm? You know, because we always hear, well, a yogi sees it as pure land. So, well, what does that mean? Yeah, they see it as a pure land. So I asked the question, and the conclusion was they all broke out laughing, laughing and said, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay, so the section in this book about karmic seeds and having ceased, which is in chapter five, uh, came from one of these interviews. I asked about the similarities and differences between karmic seeds and having ceased. And a lengthy, energetic discussion, punctuated with much laughter, followed. The discussion and debate continued after the session with His Holiness, as I asked the Geshis more questions over tea. At the end, we concluded that there were many more questions and points of debate to explore. And there really were, you know, like initially when you ask the first question, they just explain, well, this is a karmic seed and this is a having ceased. Okay, that's fine. You write it down. You think you understand it. Then you start thinking, well, what's the difference between them? And do you really have to have both? Or is one needed and the other isn't needed? Okay, and you start asking this, and is there a having ceased of the having ceased? Yeah, and having ceased of the having ceased of the having ceased. Um, yeah, and, and how do things ripen? What does it mean? How does a seed ripen? How does a having ceased bring a result? Okay, and what are these things? They're impermanent. Are they form? Are they consciousness? Are they abstract composites? So you just, once you start thinking about a topic, you have gazillions of questions. So then you understand why the monks and nuns debate. Because it, you know, this, it helps you to look at these topics. So while writing, it sometimes seemed that I was translating from English into English. Okay, so philosophical texts are lengthy, filled with debates, and often had sentences that are one page long. Seriously, those of you who have learned even a little Tibetan, you know, yeah, one sentence starts here, it ends here, okay? So, um, 
you know, translating literally is, is, you have to break it up somehow to put it into our language. So we had to extract the important points and express them in easy-to-understand English, including background material when necessary and examples to help the reader understand. Okay, because if you've uh, picked up some of the uh, translations of the philosophical texts, they're in English. Can you understand what they're saying? Yeah, they're not easy to understand. Okay, different vocabulary and words you've never heard and long sentences and topics you've never thought of. So that's what I mean. I felt like I was translating from English into English, trying to make some of this material uh, understandable for a Western audience. So as the manuscript inc increased in length, we realized that instead of being a book, it would become a series of books. So in oral teachings, His Holiness weaves various topics together in a way that we listeners may have not considered before, opening up new meanings and perspectives. And this is really one of the beauties and um, skills that His Holiness has as a teacher, is topics that you've thought about, but you haven't joined together. He will pull them together so that you see how they're related. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So he also goes from simple co uh, to complex topics and back again in a matter of minutes, um, making one talk pertinent for both beginners and advanced practitioners. He doesn't expect us to understand everything at the first explanation and knows that our understanding will grow slowly as new layers of meaning are revealed to our minds as a result of our purification, collection of merit, study, and reflection. Okay? So the whole approach to learning Buddhism is different than our approach to learning in se secular material in secular schools. Okay? In secular schools, secular material, you're supposed to Remember what the teacher said, what the book said, and be able on a test to teach, tell the teacher what they already know. And the more you can tell them what they already know, the better grade you get. Okay, and you're expected to master that material. Okay, in Buddhism, it's very, the, the understanding is that we are changing our mind, transforming our whole mind. We're not just learning information, okay? Practicing Dharma is a process of building character, of making ourselves into certain kinds of people with compassionate motivations and the kind of wisdom to be able to help others. Yeah, so we're not, because this is a gradual process, our teachers don't expect us to learn everything and understand everything the first time. The idea is that we hear it many, many, many times. And each time you hear it, 
you hear it differently. Yeah, and your mind understands it at a different level. And so this is why when His Holiness teaches, even the Geshis, the, the scholars, the meditators, the people who know the Dharma really well, all attend His teachings because each time they hear even the introductory topics, it goes in at a different level. So it's very much a process of putting imprints in the mind, of familiarizing our mind with different topics, different ways of thinking, different uh, emotional feelings. Okay? So uh, that's why we're not expected just to learn some material and feed it back, or even to understand everything at once. Yeah? So we have to listen Think about what we hear, yeah, meditate as best as we can, and that process puts seeds on our mind stream and latencies on our mind stream, and then slowly, slowly, with more familiarization, our understanding increases until it becomes actual realizations of the material, okay? So it's a slow process. So don't expect yourself to understand everything. Okay? Okay, so for this reason, the volumes in this series are meant to be read again and again so that each time you will discover new gems. The volumes can also be read individually if you're interested in a particular topic or to be used as a resource when you need to look up a specific point. But you will get the most from them if you are able to start at the beginning and, and read through. Okay? So, then there's an overview of a samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. So this is just to give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about. Um, so rather than read it, I'll, I will just look at the table of contents and go through that with you. Okay, so we start with an introduction by His Holiness. Okay, then we go into a chapter called The Self, The Four Truths, and Their Sixteen Attributes. So there His Holiness starts uh, with talking about being at a uh, an interfaith conference where they everybody was asked three questions about the self. Okay, so we'll get into that probably tonight. Then we talk about the four truths. By the way, I don't say four noble truths, because the uh, actual thing is it, it's four truths seen by the Aryas. Okay, so the Aryas are the term was translated as a noble being because they see reality directly. But to say the four noble truths and the first one is dukkha, you know, uh, unsatisfactory experiences, people say, well, what in the world is noble about that? And especially when they translate dukkha as suffering, there's nothing noble about that. Okay, so that's why I usually say that four truths of the noble, of the Aryas. 
Uh, or just simply the four truths, okay? And I don't say true suffering because, again, that's a misleading translation, yeah? Because people aren't, you know, in relative conventional language, we don't say we're suffering all the time, do we? Sometimes we're happy. Or you say the truth is suffer, truth of suffering, and then people will start out with all life is suffering. And, you know, in some countries it may be, but in other places it's not. Okay? And so if, if you translate dukkha as suffering, it's very confusing and misleading. But it actually means unsatisfactory experiences. So if I ask you, is your life one continuous stream of satisfactory, happy experiences, what are you going to say? No, I have many unsatisfactory experiences. Okay, So that term of dukkha is usually just, I leave that in the Pali-Sanskrit word, okay, instead of saying suffering, because I just think suffering is, is too misleading. Okay. Okay, so we talk about the four truths, the coarse and subtle forms, and there's 16 aspects. Okay? Shows holiness, hits us with the big stuff right away, you know? Then chapter two is revolving in cyclic existence, and that goes into the truth of dukkha. Okay? So it talks about the realms of ex existence, the three kinds of dukkha, um, the six disadvantages of cyclic existence, the eight unsatisfactory conditions, examining dukkha via the ten points. If you like lists with numbers, Buddhism is the religion for you. Yeah, there's plenty of lists with plenty of numbers, but it helps you to remember the material. Okay. Then the third chapter is about the true origin of dukkha, and there we talk about different kinds of defilements, afflictions, underlying tendencies, fetters, pollutants, hindrances. And this, cha and this chapter, uh, we have a lot from the Sanskrit tradition and also from the Pali tradition. And so you'll see the similarities and as well as the differences in how they talk about this. Chapter four is afflictions. They're arising and they're antidotes. So we talk here about the order in which afflictions arise, uh, factors that cause them to arise, feelings that accompany them, the ethical dimensions of afflictions, counterforces, and so on. Chapter five is more about afflictions. Okay, because they're the chief troublemaker that we have to abolish. And we not only talk about afflictions, but also the polluted karma that they create and the seeds and latencies of both karma and afflictions. So acquired and innate afflictions, coarse and subtle afflictions, yeah, seeds, latent seeds, having ceased, all these kinds of things, okay? Then chapter six is karma, the universe, and evolution. And this chapter is taken 
really um, from an interview I had with His His Holiness, I can't even remember how many years ago. It was a really, really long time. Um, maybe even in the in the eighties or the nineties. It was a long time ago, and because uh, I wanted to know, you know, does karma? Did karma create the world? You know, and we hear that our world is created by mind. What in the world does that mean? How does the mind create the world? So I got in for an interview, and uh, the tra- it was his usual translator wasn't there. So he called uh, Gareth from the um, dialectic school, who came and translated, and and that's where this chapter is from. Yeah. Then chapter seven uh, gets into revolving in cyclic existence, so the 12 links of dependent origination. And then chapter 8 goes on more about dependent origination and how we cycle in samsara, so how the, the different links occur in various combinations according to the Sanskrit tradition and also the Pali tradition. Chapter 9 goes into... Um, uh, meditating on the 12 links and uh, how to generate uh, what is often called renunciation. And that word is usually m- misinterpreted. Um, I think a better translation is the aspiration for liberation or the determination to be free because often uh, when people in our culture here uh, you have to generate renunciation. They think, oh, I have to give up chocolate. I have to give up a house. I have to give up everything and live in a cave on nettles in the freezing cold. Yeah, without my teddy bear, without my electric blanket, um, you know, without my, oh my God, I have to give up my cell phone. Yeah, but renunciation I, it means suffering, you know? Renunciation to people means you're, you're giving up your happiness to practice the path. Yeah, this is part of our cultural conditioning, okay? When you, think, when you get to see the, the, you know, Judaic Christian cultural conditioning and how we think. But in Buddhism, what renunciation means, what are you renouncing? You're renouncing dukkha. You're renouncing all your unsatisfactory experiences. Yeah, because you want to attain liberation and you want to attain a lasting state of happiness. Okay? So again, in the book, trying to refine the vocabulary a little bit that that we're using. Okay, chapter 10 is uh, seeking genuine peace. And so going into the forward and reverse orders of both the afflictive and the purified signs, uh, sides of the 12 links. And then uh, the transcendental dependent origination from the Pali tradition. And that that I found it very, very interesting because they, they talked about 
the steps there, the qualities you generate yeah, as like a series of dependent links. Okay, then chapter 11 is freedom from cyclic existence. So um, here talking about the stages leading to liberation and full awakening, the two obscurations, the afflictive obscurations, the cognitive obscurations, nirvana, and how nirvana is spoken of in the Sanskrit tradition and in the Pali tradition. And then bodhi, or awakening. Okay, Then uh, chapter 12 gets into the mind and its potential. Because having 10 chapters that are pretty much on the first two truths, and the 11th chapter on nirvana, I figured people needed something more uplifting <laughs> at the end of the book. And talking about the actual path, that's going to come in volume four. And it's quite large, and I couldn't squeeze it all into this volume. So we put Buddha nature here. Because Buddha nature, usually it, it doesn't fit in a particular place in the Lam Rim. You, you don't see a chapter called Buddha nature in the Lam Rim. It's usually taught in a text called Gyu Lama, or the Sublime Continuum. So here it started talk, starting to talk about the mind and its potential. Again, from the Pali viewpoint, the Yogacara or Chittamadra viewpoint, the uh, Prasangika viewpoint, and then chapter 13 about and 14, both of them about Buddha nature. So, um, you know, talking about what Buddha nature is, then there's different similes about uh, for the Tathagatagarbha, which is, Tathagatagarbha is like Buddha nature, but not exactly the same, okay? And uh, then 14 goes into the three turnings of the Dharma wheel, the link, how the um, uh, there's a link between the second and third, um, in terms of describing true path and what is Buddha nature, and then how that leads us into uh, Tantra and the three kayas or the three bodies of a Buddha. So we talk some about that, about uh, the causal clear light, what continues to awakening, a little bit about Dzogchen and Mahamudra, and, uh, and then... Are we already Buddhists? Because some schools, you know, teach, well, you're already a Buddha. Yeah. But that gives rise to a question of, if I'm already a Buddha, why do I need to practice? Okay. So we go into that whole argument and how, and why, and what it, what the Buddha was really trying to get across to people when he said, uh, you have Buddha nature. Because sometimes Buddha nature can refer to the causal Buddha nature that we have the potential to become a Buddha. Sometimes Buddha nature, that term, like in the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, can be used to refer to awakening. Okay? The nature of a Buddha. Okay, so t talking a little bit about that.
So that's an, an overview of what we're going to get into. So there's a lot, okay? But it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. Don't get overwhelmed yet. <laughs> so uh, let's start first with uh, His Holiness's introduction. So I'll read and then explain a little bit. So His Holiness begins with how to study the teachings. So this part is uh, from the, the Lamrim, but it's an excellent example. Okay. Mm -hmm. As with all activities, our attitude and motivation for learning and practicing the Buddha Dharma affect the value of our actions. So generally, motivation is the most important thing in an action um, because it's what determines whether an action is virtuous or non-virtuous. By the way, talking about vocabulary and translation terms, some people don't like the terms virtuous and non-virtuous. They use wholesome and unwholesome. Some people don't like wholesome and unwholesome, and they talk about, I mean, there's all sorts of different things, okay? Basically, what it comes down to is there's no uh, good translation because uh, sometimes using virtuous and non-virtuous, people go in the West go back to the religion they grew up with, okay? And then they think in terms of what's virtuous and non-virtuous in that religion. But that's there's some overlays, uh, but but some things that aren't. So we don't want to really use, you know, I try not to use Judeo-Christian words. You will not find the word sin in this series. That word is a, abolished, okay, because I think it's too much of a loaded word for people in the West, okay. Um, so I personally have just gotten used to virtuous and non-virtuous. I didn't like wholesome and unwholesome so much, you know, because it's like in the 1950s, all the girls were wholesome young women. You know, remember that? And my generation, we were not so wholesome. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, not that we were virtuous either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, so I stuck with virtue and non-virtue, you know. So keeping six factors in mind will enable you to have a beneficial motivation. So first, see yourself as a sick person who wants to recover. Our illness is samsara, cyclic existence. And the dukkha, the unsatisfactory circumstances, that permeate us. So that is the illness we suffer, suffer from. Dukkha includes being subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death under the influence of afflictions and karma, as well as not getting what we want, being separated from what we love, and encountering problems we don't want. Okay, that's enough, isn't it? Seeing ourselves as ill we will approach the teachings with sincerity and receptivity. So this is really important, you know, 
We have to come into the Dharma with an attitude of humility, with an attitude of realizing that our life is not hunky-dory and that we don't have control over it and that we don't even understand our mind. We don't even understand why we got here or what the meaning of our life is. Yeah. We're very, very confused. So we have to come in feeling like the sick person, you know, and being open and receptive and humble and willing to listen. Humility does not mean we don't question. Yes, we question. We have to question in order to gain the right understanding. But humility means that we don't come in as a know-it-all. Okay? Because in some other aspects of our life, we may feel like a know-it-all. Okay? And you walk in and like, okay, I know what this is all about. And oh, you guys teach Buddhism. You teach rebirth. I don't believe in rebirth. Prove it to me. It's your job to prove it to me. It's not my job to try and understand it. You see. Anyway, I know all about how things function. Yeah. And I'm an intelligent person. And look at all my sheets of paper of all the courses I've taken and degrees I have. Look at one sheet after another after another. I am educated. I know it all. Okay. Now, the only time I thought I, w- I knew it all and was close to omniscience was at age 16. Because I think most of us knew it all at age 16. Didn't you? Yeah. The first thing you knew is that your parents didn't know very much. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, as you live, you realize, oh, I too don't know very much. Okay. So coming in with that kind of uh, really an earnest attitude that seeks to understand. Okay. Second, regard the teacher as a kind doctor who correctly diagnoses our illness and prescribes the medicine to cure it. Our samsara is rooted in mental afflictions, the chief of which is ignorance that that misapprehends the ultimate nature of phenomena. So although we want happiness, our minds are continually overwhelmed by attachment, anger, and confusion that cause us misery here and now and create the karma for future dukkha. Okay? So we we have to see our situation that we're living in right now as an illness something that has to be overcome in order for us to have actual health and to have some kind of secure form of happiness. The Dharma teacher, the, you know, the Buddha, is our, is our teacher, yeah, and is like the doctor, yeah. So if you're a know-it-all, 
you don't go to the doctor because you know it all and you're not going to believe the doctor because your doctor doesn't know anything. Okay? So that's why we have to see we're a sick person. We don't know how to cure ourselves. We have to go to somebody who knows more than we do. Yeah? So we go to the Buddha and say, here I am, what's wrong? Yeah. Buddha diagnoses it. Oh, you're suffering from dukkha and its causes. Yeah. And he's going to prescribe medicine. Okay. So that's the next. Uh, third, we seek teachings as the medicine to cure our illness. Okay. The Buddhist prescribes the medicine of the three higher trainings in ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom, and the medicine of bodhicitta and the six perfections, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. Okay, And then fourth, understand uh, that practicing the teachings is the method to heal. Okay? So, yeah, the teachings are the medicine. Yeah? And then we have to practice the teachings in order to heal ourselves. Okay? And so, we don't just take notes. Yeah? We don't just highlight in our book, put the book back on the cupboard, put the notes somewhere high, or just, you know, stash them in your computer someplace, and, uh, and then forget about things. Yeah. If we do that, that's like going to the drugstore, buying the medicine, bringing it home, putting it in your bottom drawer, and forgetting about it. Or maybe you just put it in the bathroom cupboard and forget about it there. Or even a little bit closer on your bedside table and you forget about it there. But you don't take the, you don't take the medicine, okay? So you bothered to go to the doctor, get the medicine, and then you said, pooey, I'm not taking this stuff, okay? And we do that with the Dharma teachings sometimes too, don't we? Yeah, oh, this teaching, very interesting, type, 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 type. Oh, so interesting, yes, teacher's so wise, this is really good. Oh, I'm going to go home and practice, this is the medicine that's really going to help me, and I'm going to go home and practice. Okay, shut your computer, leave the session, go out with your friends, have a good time, drink, drug, Go to the disco. Maybe you're not that kind of person. So you watch, you go, you open Netflix. Yeah. And you watch something on Netflix and order a pizza. Or you go to the beach with your friends. But you don't actually sit down and even review your notes. Yeah. Or even think about what you heard. Because, you know, you went to the Dharma teaching because, well, it was interesting. And the teacher, Teacher is really entertaining. Yeah? 
subject matter. Sometimes, you know, they start out, they read lists, you know. There's the three kinds of dukkha, this dukkha, that dukkha, that dukkha. Then there's the six disadvantages of samsara, this one, two, three. You know, the, the, so those two kind of teachers, I'm not going to go back to, I want to be entertained. You know, I mean, everything, life is about entertainment, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, in, in the age of internet, when click, click and push button happiness, uh, so I want to be entertained. And don't make the teachings too long. I have a meditation span of two minutes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll pay attention for two minutes and then I'll kind of check out everybody else in the room and say, oh, there's some good looking guy over there. Uh, you know, and, and see, and then, you know, after a few minutes, come back to the teachings. Yeah. So this is, this is, you know, when we're not real serious. We're not seeing ourselves as the sick person. And we're not really uh, thinking of the doctor as somebody who, who knows something we don't. And not really respecting the medicine either. Okay, the next paragraph says, When we are ill, we naturally respect the doctor, trust the medicine, and want to take it, even if it doesn't taste so good. Well, not everybody does that, but this is looking optimistically. Okay, if we second-guess the doctor or complain about the medicine, we won't take it. Similarly, if we don't respect the Buddha and the Dharma, we won't practice it. Yeah. This is so old. He lived 2,500 centuries ago. What did they know 2,500 centuries ago? Nothing. Yeah. They still, they didn't even know about the periodic chart. They talked about all these partless particle kind of things, you know, and particles of earth, water, uh, fire, space, wind. How does fire have a part? These people, you know, they didn't know anything about science. Yeah, why should I listen to them? Okay. There's a lot of that kind of thinking yeah, nowadays. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, when His Holiness has met with scientists and they actually are curious and they listen, then they become very, very interested in similarities and differences between Buddhist philosophy and what they're discovering in science. Okay, and and the uh, theories behind the scientific discoveries. So similarly, if we don't respect the Buddha and the Dharma, we won't practice. Likewise, if we have a prescription but don't fill it, or fill it but don't take the medicine, we won't recover. We must make an effort to learn and practice the Dharma and not simply collect statues, texts, prayer beads, blessing cords, pictures of, uh, you know, various lamas, pictures of various deities. And nowadays, you know, uh, collect uh, not even CDs, but, you know, download on your iPod all these mantras that have music with them. 
But not just we sing it with that melody, but there's things that have the the instrumentals with it. Yeah. So you learn and you know that's good. And then you can even start dancing. Okay. And uh, you know, we have to be amused. So, but we actually have to make an effort to practice and not just collect stuff. Okay. Curing the illness is a collaborative process between the doctor and patient. We must both do our parts. And here's a quote from the King of Concentration Sutra. Some people are ill, their bodies tormented. For many years, there is not even temporary relief. Afflicted with illness for a very long time, they seek a doctor in search of a cure. Searching again and again, they at last find a physician with skill and knowledge. Treating the patients with compassion, the doctor gives medicine, saying, Here, take this. The medicine is plentiful, good, and valuable. It will cure the illness, but the patients do not take it. This is not a shortcoming of the doctor, nor a fault of the medicine. It is just the negligence of those who are ill. I have explained, the Buddha is saying this, I have explained this very good teaching, yet if you, having heard it, do not practice correctly, then just like a sick person holding a bag of medicine, your illness cannot be cured. Powerful. So taking the medicine entails looking beyond the words we hear and trying to understand their deeper meaning. When that is clear in our minds, then we must consistently put it into practice. Notice the word consistently. Notice the word practice. Practice means repetition. Consistency means doing it consistently, you know, in an organized manner, not on and off, on and off, okay? When taking ordinary medicine, we must follow the instructions properly and take the whole cycle. If you have TB and you just take a little bit of the medicine, it won't cure the TB. You have to take the whole thing. If you have an antibiotic, you have to take the whole round of antibiotics, not just a few tablets until you feel well. Why? Because the virus is still in your system and it will reappear and it will be worse because it has mutated. And the if you take the same antibiotics again, it may not kill that mutation, okay? So this is, this is, we're learning this through COVID, yeah, but we heard it before. This book was written before COVID. Okay, so then and only then, when we consistently put the Dharma into practice, will our disease of dukkha and afflictions be cured. When taking ordinary medicine, we must follow the instructions properly and take the whole cycle. If we take the medicine for a few days and stop, 
we won't get well. It's like meditating on the antidote to anger once or twice and expecting that you will never get angry again. Forget it. You know, we have to remember that the seeds of our anger have been there since beginningless time. So we need to, you know, uh, take the medicine for a long time to reverse that. Similarly, if we don't like the taste of the medicine and so mix in all sorts of better tasting things or leave the medicine aside just to eat the better tasting things, we won't recover. Yeah. Have you ever had medicine that tastes awful? Yeah. And remember when you were a little kid and, you know, mom had to uh, grind it up, the medicine, and mix it with applesauce? Yeah, or if you're lucky, you talked her into mixing it with ice cream. <laughs> yeah, but you had to push really hard for that. It was usually applesauce. And and then, you know, it was like open wide, zoom, okay? So our commitment to practicing the teachings as uh, we are able to is a crucial element in our awakening. Okay, the sangha are the ones who are like the nurses who, you know, smash up the medicine and mix it with the applesauce and give it to us. So if, uh, you know, that's why practicing with the sangha is very helpful. Of course, the real sangha that's our refuge are the Arya beings, okay? The substitute or the representative for the sangha is a monastic community, not just one monastic, but four more monastics who perform the Vinaya rites. Okay. The Sangha is not just one person who goes to a Dharma center. Okay. But the, but the function, you know, of the Sangha, of those who are elder in the Dharma than us, uh, is to help us practice and answer our question, and encourage us, you know, get us to the cushion when we can't get ourselves to the cushion. Okay. Fifth, uh, okay, is to regard the Buddhas as excellent, wise, and compassionate beings. And sixth is to pray that the teachings will exist for a very long time so that many sentient beings can benefit from them. Okay, so those are the the, the last two. So we want to really regard the Buddhas as excellent beings who are our refuge, who we trust, and we trust what they teach. And then as we practice the teachings and see their benefit, our regard, our respect for the Dharma increases, our respect for the Buddha who taught it increases, our respect for the Sangha who... Um, who practice it increases. And from that, then we want to really dedicate so that these teachings exist uh, for a very long time in a pure fashion so that uh, many, many sentient beings can meet the Dharma. Okay, then cultivate an altruistic motivation, thinking, I want to be free from the dukkha of samsara and will seek the Buddha's medicine that, when practiced properly, will lead me to good health. But I am not the only sick person. 
countless sentient beings also wander in samsara and suffer from the afflictions. May I become a skillful and compassionate doctor like the Buddha so that I can help all other sentient beings to be free from the dukkha of samsara. So we generate the bodhicitta motivation. Okay, let's pause here first and see, are there any questions before we go on? Can Venerable talk a little about the beautiful cover for the book, who designed it, and any other backstory? Oh, okay. I don't know who painted this particular version of the Wheel of Life. Um, The Wheel of Life in general, the story... I'll see if I can get the details on the story right. One king was uh, wanted to give a gift to another king and uh, wanted to expose him to the Buddha Dharma. So he uh, had somebody design this wheel of life and sent it to that king as a gift. And that is the origin of, of the picture. Okay. Like I said, I don't know who painted this particular one, um, but this particular one, okay, is uh, from the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives in Dharamsala. And I was able to, to get it to use for the cover here because uh, the current director of the library, Geshe Laktor, um, is an old friend of mine from way back. And he was also the one who translated at some of the early interviews I had with His Holiness back in the 90s. And so when I was in Dharamsala uh, some years ago, I went to visit him. He's now the director of the library. And he gave me one of their uh, annual reports, and there was this picture in it. And I said, please, you know, can I have uh, um, a high-resolution digital, you know, thing of this picture to use for the the cover? And uh, Geshe Lakdor very kindly arranged for to give me that. So that's the backstory of of this particular drawing. Okay, the covers, by the way, were designed by Wisdom um, Publications. I don't know. There have been various people who have designed the different covers um, and various people within the publishing company that I work with for different different activities. Ben is one of the, the people who puts the whole book together. So he's involved in a lot of this. And Mary is my editor. So, yeah. Other questions? Yes. Um, nowadays, at least, I don't know for how long already, uh, it seems to be difficult for many people like us to have respect. And can you speak a little bit more about how to develop respect and what hinders us? I mean, you were touching on it that, you know, we need to see the Buddha as wise and compassionate. Can you speak a little bit more how to um, approach that topic? Okay. So, I agree with you that this day respect is in short order. Yeah. Um, everybody seems to, to uh, 
want respect but not want to give respect because sometimes we think of if somebody is respectable, then they are higher than us. And of course, we want to be the highest, okay? We want to be the most respected and honored. Uh, so it's hard for us to, to see other people's good qualities. Actually, that becomes a big hindrance on the path because if we can't see others' good qualities, then how are we going to generate those same qualities ourselves? That's why humility is, is really important, okay? Is we have to be able to see the good qualities in others. Uh, how to see them? First, we have to stop the incessant chatter in our mind that says, I want to be best, I want to be first. Actually, I don't like myself very much, but if I can convince other people that I'm a wonderful person and be high on their, on their list of people they like, then maybe I can try and convince myself that I'm okay. We have to get rid of that attitude, okay? Because, you know, and, and stop competing with other people. And instead, really, uh, you know, uh, respect people's talents and abilities. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, I came to that personally um, by finally figuring out that if I were the best, then the world would be in a really bad situation. Okay. I don't know anything about electricity except how to turn the switch on and how to change a bulb. I don't know anything about plumbing except how to flush the toilet and turn on the water faucet. I don't know anything about construction except how to get frustrated over it. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's I, most things I don't know anything about. Yeah, I don't know how to grow seeds. I know you plant or grow plant, grow food. I know you plant seeds and you have to give water and fertilizer, but I don't know how much in what season and so on. You know, if you left me to, to my devices, I wouldn't be able to survive. And if my knowledge were the culmination of human knowledge, we would be back even before the cave people. Okay. So that, that was helpful for me to develop respect. Also helpful, especially in terms of uh, respect for the Buddha Dharma Sangha, was as I started to practice the teachings in my own life, as I started to practice the antidotes to anger, the antidotes to self-centeredness, the antidotes to greed and so on. Um, as I practiced them, I saw that they worked. And what did they say? The proof is in the pudding. Yeah. So when you practice something and it works and it helps you and you aren't as depressed as you used to be and you aren't as dissatisfied, you aren't as nasty to other people as you used to be, then Okay, the Buddha knows something. He knows what he's talking about. 
these people who practice it, they're onto something. The teachings themselves have some wisdom. Okay? So I think by gaining some personal experience of them, even just the the bare minimum that I learned at my very first Dharma course, um, that was enough to, to, you know, have me respect the three jewels. I had zillions of questions. My questions were not all answered. But the little bit of practice that I did, and also contemplating the teachings and how they really... Um, as a worldview, they made so much sense. So that also uh, increased my respect. Question is, what does it entail not to be respectful to the Buddha and Dharma? Well, say that again. What does it entail to not be respectful to the Buddha and the Dharma? Okay, so not being respectful to the Buddha and the Dharma is what I was just saying. Like the Dharma, it was taught 25 centuries ago. They didn't know about rocket science. They didn't know about computers. You know, what What do they know? You know, and the Buddha, he was just one guy. He didn't even go to college. I have a PhD. Yeah, well, I maybe I have a BS. Well, maybe I, gra- I have a, uh, I graduated from high school. Uh, you know, but I know a lot. And what, what did the Buddha know? They didn't, those people then didn't know very much, you know. And I'm learning from Tibetan teachers. Tibetans, they didn't even have the wheel until after 1959. Can you imagine that? A culture that didn't even have the wheel? What do those people know? You know, they're country bumpkins. I'm educated. I'm wise. Yeah? So that kind of attitude. Hmm? How do we ensure that we are consistent in taking medicine and were there external factors that Venerable created or found to support her in consistently taking the medicine when she was new to the Dharma? Okay. So when I was new to the Dharma, I went to my first course. It was three weeks long. I, I was a teacher at the time, so I wasn't working in the summer. So I went to the course. I came home. I wasn't working. I had free time. So I set up a daily meditation practice to review everything that I I learned in that course. And so that got me going on having a regular meditation practice. And I just continued uh, from there. Yeah. Um, I I think you have to have a... uh, When you see the value of having a daily practice, whether you're doing a formal meditation or whether you're doing a reading from a Dharma book or watching a video and paying attention while you're watching it, um, you have to have something that values what you're learning. And and then when you value it and it means something to you, um, then... You just include it as a regular part of your life. You know, like we eat every day. Why? Because we need to nourish our body and we value the fact that our body needs nourishment. So we make sure we eat every day. We, you know, so it's like we not only have to nourish our body, we have to nourish our heart and our mind. Um, 
you know, otherwise we we just become, we're out of touch with ourselves, we're uh, upset and depressed and anxious all the time. So, uh, you know, when you start to, to practice and you see even a little bit of benefit, then encourage yourself and really make it as part of your day. You know, everybody has a morning ritual. Yeah, don't you have a morning ritual? You do every single morning. Yeah. So you just include some meditation in your morning ritual. Yeah. You you never forget to brush your teeth. You know, we don't forget to eat breakfast. Yeah. There's there, there's things we do every morning. So you just include to nourish your mind, you know, make enough time and space in the morning so that you can do this. Okay. Now, that may mean that you have to go to bed a little bit earlier. And that may mean that you have to give up your your favorite TV show. I know that's incredibly, incredible suffering. Or you have to give up, you know, uh, uh, uh uh, what is it, texting your friends back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, or talking on the phone or having a Skype call just to get to bed a little bit earlier. But, you know, it's okay to give up those things. We're not going to die. Yeah. And then your friends go, well, you used to stay up and talk with me late, now you're going to bed early, what's up? What are you doing in the morning that you have to do that? And you say, I have an appointment early in the morning. Yeah, Because you always have, nowadays, you have to have a, an appointment. Your whole schedule has to be completely filled. Otherwise, you don't have a life. Yeah, you have to be over busy every moment so that people will think that you are active and positive and popular and together, yeah, as you take your anti-anxiety medicine because you are so stressed out. Okay, but, yeah, um, I, I have an appointment. That usually stops people. Yeah. Sometimes they might say, who do you have an appointment with so early in the morning? The Buddha. I have an appointment with the Buddha. Yeah. Isn't that what your, your meditation practice is about every morning? You have an appointment with the Buddha. You check in with the Buddha every day because the Buddha is your best friend. And you certainly don't stand the Buddha up. That is not good. Okay? So you get to your appointment every day. And, and it just becomes part of your life, part of your habit. Hmm?